Good morning, church. If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 1. Uh, Pastor Toby will be beginning a new series today, our, and our scripture reading will be Acts chapter 1, uh, the first 14 verses. Uh, if you're using the Black Pew Bible that's either near you or in front of you, you'll find today's text on page 909. So once again, that's chapter, Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had, whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And when they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from, Mount, from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have gathered us together today to hear your word proclaimed. As it describes the details of the very beginning of your church. We are especially encouraged by the words that we have just read that describe both the departure of Christ from this world as he ascended into heaven and the promise that he would return in the same way. And in that promise we can rejoice in anticipation of his return. Father, we now pray for Pastor Toby as he comes to deliver today's message. Fill him with your Holy Spirit. Speak through him with clarity and boldness and power. We would ask you to open our hearts and minds to receive the words he has prepared for us and to live by them daily with the same hunger and passion as the apostles did in that upper room, devoting themselves to prayer in one accord so many years ago. And we pray this, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Just by way of reminder, as it is the first Sunday of the month, at the end of the first Sunday of each month, we take a benevolence offering to help those who are struggling financially in our congregation. Um, those men will be at the doors as you leave, and I would encourage you to give as you're able. I want to begin actually by asking you a question, one that I think every Christian should confidently answer, yes. And that is this question, do you want to be useful in serving the Lord? Do you want to be successful in serving the Lord. 
This begs the question, what is it then that makes any individual, any church, useful in the task of doing God's work, doing gospel work, doing the work of the church? We spent about three quarters of the year in 2018 thinking in terms of not only being a congregation that takes the gospel to the ends of the earth, but to want to be a congregation that takes the gospel to the end of our street, in our workplace, to the end of our hallway. We still want to be that, but what is it that makes us useful in doing so? What is it that makes us successful in doing so? How how can usefulness be increased for that? What will make us faithful in that task? What is it that will make us fruitful in that task? Well, now suggestions abound, don't they? And not all of them bad. Take more classes in personal evangelism so that you can understand the details and how to explain them of the gospel better. Learn to present it clearly, maybe in a short way in case your encounter is short. Develop a deeper love for Jesus as well as for the lost. Read books that encourage you in the task and challenge you and equip you, even for things like dealing with objections or hard answers and those kinds of things. Maybe plan a strategic outreach program. Find clever ways to draw lines from the problems of life and the problems of the world to the gospel and to Jesus, who is, uh, as Andre Crouch so wonderfully sang, Jesus is the answer for the world today. Above Him, there's no other. Jesus is the way. These aren't bad ideas, are they? We've done a number of them. As you may find yourself asking then, so what could possibly be missing? We have this whole group of good ideas. How could we possibly be more useful with so many good ideas? Is there anything missing? The answer is yes. Something is absent. Something is glaringly absent. And sadly, it is often absent from people's ideas and conversations when it comes to any kind of ministry work. Not just in the task of evangelism, but in the task of planning men's and women's retreats. In the task of participating in chapel services at Good News Mission. In uh, the task of doing the discovery, fulfilling a role in the, the, the discovery camps for children in the summer. Going on a mission trip. Teaching children Sunday school, teaching adult Sunday school, teaching my children before they go to bed at night, helping them as they encounter various things to bring the Bible into play. There, there's something glaringly missing typically when you talk to someone about how to be useful in those opportunities of ministry. What is it that's missing? Dear friends, it's prayer. Sadly, prayer is often missing. When a problem arises, the first thing we do is not to pray, but to brainstorm. When we want to make a new ministry effort, we have all types of discussions, it seems, before we think, oh yes, and shouldn't we pray about this at some point? I point no fingers at you. I'm liable to the same types of responses. And I'm convicted in my soul for it. It was encouraging when I sat down with a pastor who uh, is now retired. And uh, he, told, he, he once said to me, um, that such and such a time in his life was the time when he really learned to pray. And it was years after he had started in the ministry. Um, may we all really learn to pray, yes? 
prayer is missing. You see here at Gray Road, we're actually quite committed to the, a high view of the sovereignty of God over all things, including salvation, that if one comes to Christ, they come to Christ because God first comes to them in grace. We're committed to those things, but dear friends, I must tell you there is a danger for anyone who believes and loves and teaches and defends the absolute sovereignty of God in all things, and that is that in magnifying that one truth, we can diminish so many others. For example, one can be so exclusively focused on the sovereignty of God that praying isn't seen as crucial or important. That what matters is we get the message right and God will bless the right message if we do it right. And if He doesn't give the growth, well, that's His prerogative. Well, now there's a sense in which that's true, isn't it? Don't we want to have the right message? Don't you want the right message coming from this pulpit? Don't you want it happening in Sunday school classes? When you share the gospel with your friend, don't you want to be sharing the right gospel? Of course. But the Bible teaches us that our sovereign God works His sovereign purposes in response to the prayers of His people. Paul perpetually pleads with churches to pray for him and his ministry. And Paul, of all people, knew the sovereignty of God. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 1, he says that these prayers are actually helpful. They are doing something for him in ministry. In Isaiah chapter 37, the Assyrians are knocking on the door of trying to take over Jerusalem, and Hezekiah bows down to pray. And Isaiah comes to him with a message from the Lord and says, Because you have prayed... And essentially says, I will deliver the city. And, he, and so he does. What would have happened if, I, if Hezekiah hadn't prayed? The city wouldn't have been saved. Let's not fool ourselves into thinking that God bypasses the very means that he ordains to do his work. God answered Hezekiah's prayer. And in fact, didn't even just say, I'm going to answer your prayer. He says, because you have prayed. It's a great mystery, isn't it? Isn't it a great mystery to think about a God who is absolutely sovereign over every square inch and every millisecond of his universe, and yet he calls on us to pray and says he will answer when we do? Isn't that a mystery? And yet it's a mystery that so many of you could testify to. You could testify to the fact that though God is not swayed by your will one iota, yet He has heard you and answered you. Charles Spurgeon once wrote that a prayerless soul is a Christless soul. And I would dare extend that to say that a prayerless church is a Christless church, prayerlessness fueled by self-sufficiency, prayerlessness fueled by bad theology, prayerlessness fueled sometimes just by laziness, prayerlessness. So we must be reminded, shouldn't we, over and over again of prayer's necessity, of its place, of its blessing. And it's in series like these, series like a, a series on prayer or a series on giving or a series on evangelism, that we tend to squirm the most. And the reason we tend to squirm the most is we tend to wiggle out of these things the most. And we need to be called back to them again and again. Nobody has to preach a series on debating your friend. You'll just jump right into that. Nobody has to remind you, right? But praying... Knowing our need for God, calling on God, especially together as a church. This we must hear over and over again. And that's why we are beginning this year with a seven-week study on prayer. If you're a member of Gray Road, there is a booklet in your, uh, in your mailbox as for the next 40 days we seek to pray through the membership role uh, to pray for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, it's something I often uh, encourage us to do, 
And uh, now I'm challenging us to do it together and just putting something in your hands so you can't say, well, I'm not sure what to do now. Uh, because after the prayer calendar that tells us who to pray for each day, there are some suggestions on how we can pray for wisdom or for strength or for all manner of things um, uh, in that little booklet. But we begin our series by looking at Acts chapter 1, not the whole chapter, not even the whole text that was read, but only verse 14. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. If you were to look at the whole of Acts chapter 1, you would see that first there is the proclamation uh, of Jesus to uh, his disciples, then there is the prayer of his disciples, then there is the preparation of his disciples as they fill the empty slot that Judas has left, all in anticipation of Pentecost. So that's a helpful way to think. There's a proclamation, there's prayer, preparation, and then Pentecost comes. And uh, in the midst of this is prayer, right in the center of the chapter, in fact. Uh, these men and women are gathered to pray. This, uh, this prenatal church, as it were, that will be born on the day of Pentecost is gathered to pray together in anticipation of the mission to which Jesus calls them. And here in this verse we see this, that devotion to corporate prayer equips the church for usefulness in gospel work. Devotion to corporate prayer equips the church for usefulness in gospel work. And so I want to think about this under two headings, this one verse. Uh, first, their reason for praying. Actually, this will take us to the context, but the reason for their praying and then the second will be their method for praying. First, their reason for praying. We see this all leading up to verse 14. It's why I wanted Bill to read all of these verses, because it gives us actually the reason why it is that they are together and praying. First, they are together and praying because of the command of Jesus. Look at verse 4. While staying with them, he ordered them. Isn't that amazing? What a word. That is such a strong word. Doesn't Jesus just make nice suggestions? Doesn't Jesus just drop hints? No. Jesus ordered them. Do not leave this place. Wait for the promise of the Father. That word wait is actually only used here in the New Testament. It's an anticipation of an event. And so it's a unique word, but the root of that word is not a unique word. It's a word used many times. The root is actually used by Jesus several times in John chapter 15 as he, com as he commands the disciples, Abide in me. Abide, stay, remain. And that abiding leads to a promise of prayer. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. More significantly even than that, this word is used when Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. You'll remember that he separates from the twelve, taking only three, Peter, James, and John, a little farther. And he says to them, Matthew 26, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here, that's the word, remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus doesn't pat them on the back for sleeping, saying, Good job, boys. You stayed here, just like I said. Jesus' instruction was not separate. The staying and the praying went together. The, the waiting, the remaining, and the praying go together. They're hand in hand. There's no good just standing there. He doesn't, just, doesn't want them just taking up space. He's not calling them to a passive existence. He doesn't want them just in a particular geographical area. He wants them waiting by praying. He wants them watching by praying. He wants them remaining by praying. And so, is it any surprise 
that when Jesus says, wait for the promise of the Father, that once they get their silly question out of the way and Jesus ascends, what do they do? They go to waiting, which means they went to praying, anticipating that God would answer and God would keep His promise. So the command of Jesus is a reason they're praying. The second reason is the mission of Jesus. They ask their question. Verse 6 begins, So when they had come together, uh, the so could be a therefore type word, but it could also be a contrasting word, but. So imagine Jesus is saying, uh, stay here, I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now that should be enough for them to send, to send them on their way and they'll be off in the upper room just waiting and praying. But they decided they had one more ridiculous question to ask. They've asked many ridiculous questions to this point. And so they asked this question, um, so is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? If I may paraphrase our Lord, He said, none of your business. He said, but you will. You won't receive an answer, but you will receive power. And you will be my witnesses. So that in waiting for the Spirit, they're not waiting for a gift that's only for them. They're not waiting for just some blessing to come to them that they can treasure and hold to themselves. Often children, when they get gifts, whether it's for their birthday or for Christmas, they get it. And in the four or five seconds that it takes for another child in the house to realize they should want to share that with me. And they want, the, the child says, no, 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 that's mine. I just received it. It's mine. It's mine to enjoy maybe in six or seven millennia. I will share it with you. But for now, it is mine. Well, Jesus is sending the Spirit and certainly the Spirit will bless them, won't He? He will be the presence of Christ with them. He will comfort them. He will guide them. He will teach them. He will grow them to be like Jesus. He will point them to the hope of heaven. He will testify with their spirit that they are indeed the children of God. He will pray on their behalf. And more, it will be a great blessing. And it's all true. It's glorious true. But none of these works of the Spirit are on Jesus' mind at this point. Jesus has one thing that He wants to leave them with, with this Spirit. He's taught them much about His coming already, but He leaves them with this. You will receive, the, the, you will receive power, and you will be My witnesses. Jesus' concern is for the mission that He has for them. They will not receive power for themselves. They will receive power for the mission. The power here is the power, by the way, to do the same kinds of works that Jesus did. All of the miraculous works that you see the apostles doing in the book of Acts, that is a revelation of this promise being fulfilled, that the Spirit came and gave them that kind of power to do that. So yes, it is strengthening. Yes, it does empower them to preach. But in particular, this is you are going to take up not only the words of Jesus and preach them, you are going to take up the works of Jesus and do them. You will receive power so that they will be His witnesses. They will witness to what Christ has done. They will bear witness to His death. They will bear witness to His resurrection. They will say things like, I saw Him. Thomas will walk around saying, I touched, I felt the wounds in His hands and in His side. He is risen. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father and He will return. You need to turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friends, Christians, this is the only message we have for the world that Jesus Christ has been crucified, that He was buried, and that on the third day He rose again, and that He appeared, and that He ascended, and that He is coming again, and He will judge the living and the dead, and no one will escape His pronouncement. But all who turn to Him by faith will be saved. And if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is truly the only message I can give you this morning. It is that apart from faith in Jesus Christ, 
there is no hope. There is no comfort. There is no joy. There is no peace. I'm, in my personal Bible reading, I'm in uh, the prophecy of Jeremiah, and two separate times, uh, just in the first ten chapters, God condemns the false prophets who walk around saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. This is the message of universalism today. The message of universalism is to look at anybody and just say, peace, peace. Whether you believe or don't believe, whatever you believe, whatever you think, however you feel, however you approach the Bible, whatever kind of God you want, it's all good. Peace, peace. And the Bible says there is no peace apart from the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer in Jesus and you want to know what it means to turn from your sin and trust in Him, any member of this church would love nothing more than to talk with you after this service. I would and anyone else here would. But this is the message they will take and they will receive power to attest to it and and, and they will take it to the end of the earth. Can you imagine this? These men who have barely gone a few miles from their home are now going to go to the ends of the earth? Wouldn't that be a bit overwhelming? They've heard the task from Jesus' lips, and now they see that Jesus is gone, so they go to praying. No doubt they remember the words of Jesus that apart from me you can do nothing. And yet it seems that physically they are apart from Him, and so they pray. third reason they pray is the example of Jesus. We don't actually see that here in Acts chapter 1. But this explains in my mind why their impending mission for Jesus drives them to pray. Because the impending mission of Jesus drove Jesus to pray. In Luke chapter 3 we read this. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying... The heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus is baptized and the Spirit is going to empower him to carry on his mission, both in his life and in his death. And as Jesus awaits the descending of the dove, what is he doing? He is praying. And then he's going to go on to call them to follow me. And when the promise of the Spirit is awaiting, when the dove, as it were, the flaming dove that will set its flame on them, is waiting to descend, what do they do? They do exactly what Jesus did. And they pray. It's no wonder that His disciples would do the same. And brothers and sisters, these things are why we must pray as well. I mean, we are commanded to pray. We're commanded We're ordered, if you need a stronger word, we're ordered to pray. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus lays down a model prayer in what we call the Lord's Prayer, He says, when you pray, say this. There is no doubt in Jesus' mind that His disciples will be praying disciples. Jesus' mission The mission of Jesus, it's more than we can do on our own, isn't it? If we don't believe this, we will be prayerless and it will soon become evident that we are Christless. Oh, not in our message. Our words will be full of Jesus. But the Spirit of Christ will not empower the work. The work of Jesus is not simply carried on by rightness of words being spoken. The mission of Jesus is carried along as the Spirit empowers those who speak the right words. The mission of Jesus is carried on as those who are humbly dependent on Him cry out to Him for help. Pray for me that I may 
speak words, Paul says. That I may proclaim it boldly, Paul says. If we think that we've got something former generations have, that somehow we have progressed beyond prayer, then we are operating on self-sufficient false assumptions. And the only way to operate on God-dependent true assumptions is to pray. We need to go back to 1 Corinthians 3 quite often, don't we? He who plants and he who waters are nothing. And just stop there and meditate for days. And then pray, God, bring the water, bring the Spirit, give the growth. If we think we can teach our children Bible lessons that they will love and cherish and obey and believe apart from the help of God, we have gone terribly, terribly wrong. The reasons for praying are clear. Also, their method in praying is clear. Verse 14, All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and His brothers. So, the first thing to note, it's quite on the surface, but they were gathered. They were gathered. They were in the same place. Prayer can be and often is a very individual spiritual discipline, but it is not only individual. Those who say that their way of praying is only alone do not pray in the full way that the Bible wants us to pray. We are meant to pray together. It's corporate. When you read the book of Acts... We're just reminded how much the, ga- the church gathers in prayer. They gather at formal times. They gather in informal times. They gather as a whole. Then there are little parts that gather. In fact, when you take it in its, in its whole, you'll find that individual prayer plays a very small role in the book of Acts. It is the corporate prayer that is moving the church forward. So that individuals praying the same thing in separate places when, say, an email goes out from the church with a particular need is wonderful, but it's simply not the same as gathering to pray. It's simply not. This is, there is a mysterious work that God does in His gathered people that He does not do in the same way when His people are alone. I have no chart to give you this, Right? I don't have a formula here, but I will tell you that it's true in singing. If we were to let Isaiah Helm stand up here and give a testimony about the difference between singing songs along with the radio and singing among the company of God's people, Isaiah Helms has to work. He comes to Sunday school and then he has to go to work directly afterwards. He would tell you how refreshing and different it is to be among the people of God and to be singing. Is it good to sing by yourself? Absolutely. But dear friends, it is different. Because when we sing together, we are encouraging one another. We are admonishing one another. We are pointing one another to the Lord Jesus Christ in a unique way that God has ordained. It's actually the same as preaching. Preaching is not just a series of sentences spoken about a particular passage of Scripture. It is, in the true sense, an event, an event in which our presence matters. It means more, and it is a different experience for you sitting here than it is for those who, are even, who even watch our live stream or go back and listen to the audio. My wife, if she could walk up these stairs this morning, she would tell you that very thing. She hates the idea that she's at home. Because there is something different. This, I've mentioned this before, but this is why Martin Lloyd-Jones did not like his sermons. He, was just, he reluctantly, eventually gave it up and let people begin recording his sermons to distribute them. Because he said that there is something missed even in the audio recording of a sermon. 
There's something different about you sitting here listening to the Word of God preached. And as it is in singing and as it is in preaching, so it is in praying. Our faith is strengthened in a unique way when we pray together. Our souls are encouraged. Our loads and burdens are lightened uniquely when we pray together. Older Christians mentor younger Christians in prayer by praying together. So we shouldn't be surprised by this, should we? Because the Christian life is not actually meant to be lived in isolation. It is a life meant to be lived in community, in a committed community with one another. Gathering together both formally and informally. And so is it any surprise that God would give special blessing to those things which He has ordained Christians to be part of in a special and unique way? It's not surprising. I would rather sit with five people who are praying for me than receive a thousand texts from anyone saying they're praying for me. I'd rather sit with five people and hear their prayers than, know, than just know that a thousand people are praying. There's something unique and different and wonderful and glorious and gracious that God does when His people pray together. So they're gathered, and this won't be the last time. They're also unified. Uh, the verse says they were with one accord. In other words, they weren't simply all these bodies in the same room praying various things at various times. They were actually praying together with one mind. They didn't gather because, you know, the pastor emphasized gathering for prayer. He laid it on thick on Sunday morning, and then there was a prayer meeting that night, and I felt like I better be there so I could kind of say I was listening. That's not why they're doing this. They're in one accord because they are, all, they are all together for one person, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. They are all together for one purpose. They are all together, not only in body, but they are together in spirit. They are pursuing the same God with the same passion in the same prayers. And it's glorious. It's glorious. They gathered because, quite frankly, they wanted to be gathered. They are obeying, but they're with one accord. The same unity marks the church on a number of occasions. Uh, sometimes the ESV uh, translate this same word together uh, rather than one accord, but it's, it, is, it is actually helpful to think as them being in one accord so that in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together, meaning they were all in one accord in one place. Doesn't that make sense? If they were in one place, we already know that they are geographically together. All together isn't to underline in one place. All together is to say they were in one accord in one place. Together with the same purpose. Then the summary of their activity later in chapter 2. Day by day attending the temple in one accord or together and breaking bread in their homes. In chapter 4. When they begin to taste persecution, they lifted their voices together in one accord to God. Later, Paul writes this to the church in Rome. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may, with one voice, which is the in one accord, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I actually love the way that the King James translates that. It says, with, with one mouth and with one mind. To be unified like this, to have one mind and one mouth, doesn't mean that we need to get on the same page as one another. You understand. It means that all of us together need to be on the same page with the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're all on the same page with Christ, if we're all on the same page with the Lord, we are on the same page with one another. Does that make sense? 
Not only on the same page because we're gathering because he commands it, but in the very prayers that we're praying. We believe that God is our constant help, that he's our only true help in life and in ministry. We must believe that he delights in the prayers of his gathered people. We must pray according to his word. We must come with unified confidence that he answers. We must come with unified submission to his purposes. We must be in one accord. Finally, their manner of prayer, they were devoted. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. In uh, Romans chapter 12, there is a string of uh, commands, things like abhor evil, do what is good, outdo one another, and all of these kinds of things. But in the midst of it, it says, be constant in prayer. That is this phrase in imperative form. So these people are devoting themselves to prayer. And Paul picks up his pen and says, be devoted to prayer. And he'll say it again in Colossians chapter 4. Continually devote yourselves to prayer. It's a word of commitment to God and to fellowship with Him together in prayer. Sometimes, no doubt, their prayers were prayers of desperation for protection, for rescue, for boldness. Sometimes their prayers were joyful prayers of thanks and praise. Sometimes their prayers were tearful laments over the pain of suffering or persecution. Sometimes they were seeking mercy together and forgiveness of sin. Sometimes their prayers were calling on God to bring justice against the evil in the world. But whatever the prayers were, they were devoted to prayer. Nobody came and went from their meetings and said, do these people ever pray? Do they mean it? Do they actually believe God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble? They seem to be in trouble. Why aren't they praying? Why are they having planning sessions? Why are they in a strategic meeting? Why are they launching a new program? Why aren't they praying? Nobody walks past this church and wonders that. Because they're always casting their cares on God because they know He cares for them. They're always seeking mercy and grace in their time of need. They're gathered, they're unified, they're devoted. And as a result, quite frankly, they're useful. They go and in the power of the Spirit they preach the gospel and some are saved and some refuse and some mock and some persecute. But in all of it they accomplish God's work. They accomplish the mission that God has set out for them. Praying does not, is not some kind of, you know, religious rabbit's foot where all your efforts will just be overwhelmingly successful in your eyes if you do them. But apart from prayer, no matter what the outcome is, we're not successful with God. He may choose to use our words in spite of our prayerlessness, but we are not Successful in God's eyes. These folks are useful because they pray and they pray together. Dear Christian, are you useful? If this this is not the only measure of usefulness in the Bible. But taking this measure as a point of self-examination, are you useful? Gray Road, are we useful? Are we prayerful, truly prayerful? Do we know our need for God? Do we feel it in the depths of our soul? Do we know our own impotence to do anything apart from God's help? 
when our ministry efforts seem to fail, when our evangelistic efforts seem to fall flat, when our baptistry doesn't stir with new spiritual life for weeks, months. Do we only focus on our potential failings? Well, we could do this, or we could do that, or we could do this, or we could do that, and we forget the sovereignty of God. Well, that would be an error altogether, wouldn't it? Do we focus only on the sovereignty of God and say, well, God just isn't doing anything right now. He does what He pleases, and uh, if He wants, He will do many, many things. Do we only do that and not ask the question, Are we doing everything God calls us to do in order to be fruitful should His Spirit want to bless? If we're not willing to examine our own efforts in faithfulness and our own prayer lives, then we will find ourselves using a beautiful and wonderful doctrine like the sovereignty of God as an excuse and a scapegoat. And it is not that. We must examine ourselves. We must examine our place of responsibility. Have we prayed? And if we have and things still fall flat, because that happens, doesn't it? You pray and you pray and you pray and you share and still things fall flat. We're not seeing the growth and Uh, In this, we're not seeing any response from our friend. We're not seeing any change in our children and, and so on and so forth. It goes down the line. What do we do then? Do we look for new methods? Do we look for a way to keep people around longer? Maybe there's a better hook for the unbeliever into our church. What do we, maybe we do that. We just grab for any straw that happens to come and all, of a, all along God says, Pray. Have we ever thought that praying more and strategizing just a bit less might be a better use of our time? I feel cut to the quick with this. The Word of God has searched me out on this, and it has found me wanting and needing to pursue greater zeal in my own praying. Not only myself, but us together. Small groups, large groups, special times. Devotion to corporate prayer equips the church for usefulness in gospel work. Are we useful? Are you useful? Am I useful? That question searches maybe has us pausing in front of the mirror for quite a long time to examine. And this question gets us taking a step. Do you want to be useful? Do you want to be useful? It can begin today, can't it? The words of Robert Murray McShane ring loud in the ear what a man is on his knees before God that he is and nothing more may we be a household of prayer amen we're going to pray now ask the Lord to bless his word And when we finish, our service will be concluded. Our Father, we come before you in the name that is above every name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
our crucified and risen and ascended Savior. And for myself, I know that I am searched out by your words. Lord, convince us again and again that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Not only can we not make our way to you in a reconciled relationship without him, we can't walk as reconciled people. We can't minister to others. We can't share the gospel effectively. We can't even examine our own lives faithfully. apart from you. So we call on you to give renewed zeal for those who are zealous in prayer and simply new zeal for those who are not. May we never see prayer as something we quickly bypass to get on to the real work Convince us that prayer is the real work. Would you make us useful for your service, Lord? Would you fill us with your Spirit, not just for moments such as this service, but for day-to-day living? as we go home and eat our lunch together and have conversation. Would you remind us through the sufferings of life how truly weak we are and how much we need you. Make us more and more a praying church. By your grace and for your glory. We are thankful that you love to give good gifts to your children. And we ask with confidence that you give us grace to do this, to be this, to grow, to change to be useful. We pray for the sake of our dear Savior and in His name. Amen.